I got made redundant in 2008 and I remember being on the bus going up to one of those mega buses going up to Leicester to see my uncle and my cousins and I just thought I've never felt this lost in all my life I'm 28 years old and I don't know what the hell I'm doing or where I'm going I've got no real qualifications the job that I've just been doing doesn't actually exist so I ended up just thinking, what's the one thing that I've always wanted to do? Or I've actually still been thinking about, like my brain was still working in that way. Um, and it was writing, it, it was poems. You were just listening to the origin story of Anthony Anaxaguru, the poet, educator, academic of the stage versus page debate within the poetry scene. And in this episode, you'll be hearing from him and also hear from Kim Hai-soon. That you live with Lord, no, he who descends from the mountain, that you sleep with the one who created you, you eat at the same table with the one who claims to feed and raise you, the one who strips bare the world he has made. You live with him who slaps your mummy's back, crinkles your mummy's brain map. She is one of the most celebrated poets in South Korea. You could hear her talking there and then later we'll be hearing from her through her long-term translator, Don Mi Choi. And by complete coincidence, Kim Hai-soon is one of the few poets who I personally know and love. And between you and me, the list is not a long one. Welcome back to Think Aloud, where we talk to the people shaping arts and culture today. Together we'll discuss new ideas and approach old ones from new angles to hopefully shine some light on the most exciting things happening in the arts. We're going to be talking about these two poets and their projects, which on the surface appear to bear very few similarities. But let's dig a little deeper. I tried to leave it, but it never left me, which is a bit of a weird thing to be living with for 10 years. And then I just started. I had no books. I had no poetry books. I had a couple that I was found in secondhand bookshops like the Maya Angelou's and the Rumi's and whatever else. But yeah, I was really starting from scratch and I had no money either, which was quite scary. It's really been in the last 10 years or so that Anthony Anaxaguru has established himself as a mainstay of the uh, London poetry scene and also the UK poetry scene. And also the boom in a small publishing of poetry books. But he actually first came to poetry relatively early in life. When he was in his late teens, he won the competition that is now called Slambassadors after his mum submitted one of his poems without his knowledge. After that, for various reasons, he went on hiatus for a decade or so and only started to take poetry seriously after he became redundant in 2008. And from that point, it kind of gave me an interest in it, but I still, the stuff that was in books didn't appeal to me and I didn't come from a bookish family there wasn't books widely available around the house nobody read we weren't really encouraged to read if we did read fine if we didn't no one's gonna have a pop at you so um yeah I it's all been it's been a labor of love without having any formal training in poetry any real kind of understanding of what I'm doing it's all been quite (laughs) impulsive um which is its own virtue I guess to kind of work poems like that but yeah it's all it's all felt very organic and very gradual and it's slow it's taken a long time to get my writing to where it is now 
Anthony's poetry is by nature very political, very rousing, very appealing to a young audience. And in this poem, he kind of continues what he was speaking about previously, talking about the craft of poetry, what it means to bring a beautiful form to a horrible reality, and whether those two things can and should go together. This is not a poem, and I am not a poet. When I'm unable to find a better way of saying that in 2012, 48 people in Great Britain were killed by guns and 120 women killed by the hands of their beloved partners. I am not a poet when I can't find a more beautiful way to say that no nation in the world imprisons as many members of its population as America does, that more black men in the US are incarcerated today than what they were during the peak of South Africa's apartheid. No, I am not a poet when I can't find clever words to illustrate the fact that before 2008, Nelson Mandela had been on America's list of most dangerous terrorists for over 60 years, that Cameron is a liar, that Cameron was a key member of the Foundation of Conservative Students in 89 that hoped to hang Mandela. Forgive me, because today, I am not a poet. And this is not a poem. When eloquent words fail me and I can't capture the struggle of the poor through the metaphysics of language, that by the time Margaret Thatcher left office in 1990, the annual incomes of the richest 0.01% of British society had climbed to 70 times the national mean. And I don't know how I feel about the fact that key policymakers and leading civil servants have never had a job outside of their politics. The same men who set the minimum wage, with only 4% ever having worked in manual trades of which 68% went to private schools. That is why this is not a poem and I am not a poet. Because everything I've ever written suffers the weight of its own futility when another mother comes to a workshop with a fresh black eye. When there's another empty seat in the place that James sat in last week and when I ask the group where he is, their young eyes open wet as if his coffin in that moment was being lowered into them. But you see... I, I think the central consideration of that poem is a fairly deep and fundamental one. It's about the purpose of art. Is the point of a poem to persuade? Is it in a way grotesque for the discussion of something like domestic violence or state violence to be packaged in kind of pretty uh, language that sounds good on the ears? Or is that in some way doing a disservice to the subject you're talking about? And you can hear in the rhythm of that poem, the repetition, it's almost refusal to be contained by the form that it's in, an exploration of those questions of, you know, what a poem can be and what it should be. I'm not a poet and nothing I can write will help dismantle this idea of race that we've become I'm so attached to nothing I can write will include the importance of mitochondrial DNA and the 99.99% of us that is identical, that a BNP member most probably has more Asian and Arab in them than the mosque that they conspire to blow up. The immigration isn't... Anthony went on to talk about how he started off in spoken word poetry with little formal uh, understanding of how it worked and then graduated from there to prose poetry. And this is a distinction that is quite important in his work in everything he does, also in his uh, outreach activities and the night he runs. He is very invested in the idea of trying to reclaim a space on the stage for poets who write primarily in prose rather than write poems that are meant to be read out loud because he kind of thinks that's something that has perhaps been forgotten when performance poetry is uh, so popular. I was drawn to spoken words, so I started going on YouTube and watching poems and it was interesting because having hearing something and watching an audience respond to that thing 
there was almost like a communal element to that, that when you're reading poems on a page, you know there's so much going on in here, but you've got no one to unpack it with. You've got no one to discuss what you're picking out. And also interpretive analysis of a poem involves permission. And if you don't feel that your interpretive skills are that great, you start second guessing and then doubting yourself, which again creates a weird relationship between you and the page. So I felt I didn't have the tools and the skills to navigate page poetry, whereas I felt I did with spoken word, which is kind of why I gravitated towards that in those early days. Anthony then went on to talk about what I suppose you could call uh, his fanatical dedication to his craft. Uh, from someone who was there at kind of 28, not wondering what they wanted to do, having lost a job that they didn't particularly enjoy in the first place. It's not just that he's a poet. He also teaches workshops. He does work in prisons. Uh, he speaks on panels, including at the Oxford Union. He's supported incredible musicians like Akala on tour. And of course, he works on Outspoken, which is why he's at the Southbank Centre. In May, Outspoken began a year-long residency here, which is an incredible transformation for a poetry night which established itself in, you know, the basement of a North London pub. Anthony spoke to us about the dedication that it requires to make his hectic schedule work. My head is is very noisy and I don't know if I've just become that way because of the amount that I've taken on. Uh, see, it makes sense when I understand it from the place of I came from a very precarious beginning. So I had to create as many jobs for myself as possible to ensure that I could sustain myself. And I think by doing that, this is the world, this is the, the outcome of creating all those jobs, having a vision, having an idea, and then doing everything you need to do, working with the right people to make sure that thing gets to realize itself. So now I read constantly. I'm quite austere in that I don't watch television. I ban myself from watching anything on Netflix that involves an investment, you know, like my partner watches like these big series that go on for like five seasons. And I'm just like, yeah, that's a lot. And I try to do three to four hours of reading a day. So I do two hours in the morning and then two hours again at night. And I read across genres as well. So it's a lot. And you know, your, con your mind is constantly throbbing away. Um, and then within that, you've got to time, find time to think to write and to write with kind of clarity and precision that again takes time and energy. Yeah, I kind of just take each day as it comes and try to manage my time as best as I can. And it's not, it doesn't always work. Some days you have low days, some days you have days that aren't so bad and so, uh, so taxing, but such is the business of poetry. We're going to listen to a poem now that exemplifies the huge wealth of knowledge that Anthony has accumulated by not watching Netflix. What if I told you that all life is African? What if I told you that the oldest human culture developed in Katanda, Congo? Or what if I told you that the Ethiopian Australopithecus known as Lucy is also known as Dinkwinish? What if I told you that every black face is the descendant of an ancient Egyptian? or that no country has as many pyramids as Sudan? What if I spoke about the library in Kemet and Alexander's pillaging of knowledge, the burning of books, of culture and philosophy? What if I told you that the Vikings were the most preeminent slave owners and that the 11th century saw Dublin as the slave capital of the world? 
Would you believe me if I told you that white people enslaved their own kind first, or that St. Patrick was a runaway slave, a drapetomaniac? What if I told you that Pythagoras was taught by some smooth-faced Egyptians, as was Thales and Anaximander? What if I explained Egyptian mystery schools to you? What if I told you all great European philosophers were trained by black Africans in Iona? Or what if I told you what Herodotus said about the Colchians? What if I told you what Gandhi said about Western civilization? What if I told you how Europe's dark cages in comparison to the empire? That poem, which has got this incredibly powerful repetitive structure, was a real viral hit of sorts when it came out about five years ago. It got four million views on Facebook in a week. I like it because I think it's this very thoughtful, nuanced approach to history and how history gets told. I know that Anthony is interested in this uh, quote from Napoleon, who said, you know, what is history but a fable agreed upon? So it's this idea that the things that we choose to remember and the things that we choose to forget, the narrative shape our culture, and that maybe, just maybe, you know, things could be a little bit different if we started to try and remember differently. And he said very clearly that, you know, there was no attempt to preach or persuade with that poem just to suggest alternatives. And Anthony also spoke to us about how he wants to not only kind of suggest alternatives for the past, but also suggest alternatives for the future by doing a huge amount of work with people who are coming to poetry now and hopefully making it a better experience for them than it was for him. I mean, as a kid, I absolutely despised poetry. It was one of these things where it was as dry as trigonometry. I don't remember it, like I blanked out it was that bad. It was literally like looking at a traffic cone and I was just very bored, demotivated. Um, it just wasn't interesting. So I think what I try and do now is, I mean the curriculum's changed, it's become a lot more inclusive, it's become a lot more holistic and reflective of kind of modern day society, which is what art should be. It should be a reflection of the world we live in, not a kind of snippet of almost like a particular corner of a particular world that existed once for 15 minutes, like which is kind of how it feels a lot of the time. Part of it is rebranding poetry, like somebody who is working class, somebody who looks like me, who goes in under the rubric of I'm a poet and this is what I do. and gets them thinking and talking, but really it becomes a utility to analyse the world. Something that Anthony is very interested in, especially in the work he does with Outspoken, is in kind of uh, bridging this gap between spoken word, which has always been performed live, and poetry that gets printed and distributed, which is often seen as a fairly niche concern. What he does with Outspoken is he has a lot of, you know, print poets there. And also, it's not an open mic night, and that's uh, quite unusual for poetry performances. And what it means is that it's not the case that anyone can sign up, get up on stage and perform. It's a case that they have specific poets who they've chosen in advance who are already really at a high level in their career. And what he's trying to do, I think, is to kind of recreate that excitement and buzz and live enjoyment around poetry that normally, you know, you might pick up in a dusty bookshop and browse by yourself. At the same time as doing all those things, Anthony says that he's aware that poetry will always remain somewhat of a fringe concern. It's weird with poetry, spoken word. I don't. It never quite arrives, but it never quite leaves. It's always kind of stayed in that grey area, like throughout its history. Um, 
And every now and then journalists kind of rehash old articles, poetry is a new spoken word, whatever. But it's not really the case. It's always going to be peripheral. I think poets accept that, that unless you kind of move into more popularised forms of art, music, film, whatever it might be, you're always going to have that. So I think, yeah, it's part of that. But I think the curation, I think it is literally the quality of the of the poetry in Britain at the moment. For me, like, this is the most exciting time to make him work is, is right now. And I think having that showcased and having an eclectic mix of artists who are all showing what they do, the ways in which they work, how they think, how they organise the world, I think is really, is really amazing Like to see happen in front of you. And then every month, more and more poets and then the audiences come, like I say, religiously. And it kind of tells you you're doing something right. But again, it's just trying to be fair. As much as what poetry tries to be ecumenical, all-inclusive, it isn't. Like, it is clicky, it's ageist, it's, it fetishises the debut, you know? Like, all these things are what need ironing out and what a lot of people don't, they don't really want to address. So I kind of wanted to have something. Again, it's not to kind of take the moral high ground and think, I've come here to save the day. It's more to think there's things that could be done that we definitely are within our capability of doing so it is that is to demonstrate that poetry is vast it's a broad church many different people write about many different things through many different experiences and the beauty of it is being able to sit and journey with them through those worlds and I think that the more homogenous poetry is the more we lose as readers as writers as audience members as listeners whatever we might be so for me that the main the manifesto was just that was everyone here is part of this community and there is no such thing as exclusivity there's no such thing as exclusion it's all about the worlds that live beyond the singular not write poetry about this that everything i tried to imagine had already slit its own stomach like the afternoon i spent with a woman who had been raped and i asked her to capture it in verse i asked her to use simile and alliteration until she looked at me and said i don't know what those things mean but i can tell you in a few simple words what it feels like to live with the satan of your own heart poetry isn't for me it's for people who can use words like odoriferous while putting red wine to the lips of their white skin and applaud the technical endeavour of a poem. It's wit, it's ingenuity, it's metre and form, not it's helping, not the ambulance siren that screeches from the height of its title. That is why this is not a poem and I am not a poet. Because I cried reading Douglas Dunn and Aaron Kalaka, Borges and Neruda. I cried when I went looking for female poets and found few. I cried when I asked how many black poets Penguin had ever published and was told to, when my English teacher told me that language wasn't my strength, that my anger crushed my intelligence, that I should think about going and learning a trade, and I cried then too, when I spoke to a group of young men about what it means to be a man, how we inherit this cancerous culture, how we inherit misogyny, objectification and the glory of violence while silently suppressing the sensual, these were all the hardest things to talk about, to write about and to live with. That is why I keep saying that I am not a poet and this is not a poem because all of the above digress and ignore the rules set by the establishment but all that doesn't matter because it's done now. You've come this far in listening 
Endings are always the hardest things to write because the author knows that that's the last impression the reader will be left with. So I chose the following wisely. We are made up of all the things that broke us just to keep us alive. Maybe I could have said just that, but I didn't. Because like I said, this is not a poem and I am not a poet. And now from North London to South Korea. Kim Hyesoon is one of the most famous Korean modern poets. I actually came across one of her poems in this book of prose poetry that I was reading a couple of months ago. And it was one of these things in an anthology that you're flipping through. And I was so struck by it that I had to go away and Google her and read all about her. She's an incredible woman. And this poem that I was reading was about Seoul, where she lives. And it describes the city in this absolutely viscerally disgusting way is this kind of belching defecating monster full of fish markets it's really gross and to be honest it's not what you'd expect from a 60 something year old poet who's also an academic and teacher in Seoul in fact uh, Kim's daughter came along to uh, the recording that we're going to be hearing which took place as part of the National Poetry Late earlier in May and she kind of um, said that she felt the same way Kim's daughter's an illustrator and she said that she was really surprised when she kind of become an adult to discover that her mum who was always you know telling her to shut her bedroom door and get her home early was also writing in this incredibly um, visceral graphic way and writing especially about uh, women's lives. I mean, what Kim Hyesoon does both in the content of her poetry and also in uh, the form of the poetry is to almost manifest the body as something that's constantly spilling over and oozing out and something that's uncontainable within the page. And that's a rebellion against the patriarchy. It's a rebellion against uh, traditional forms of poetry in Korea. Often in a poem like Day 3, what Kim's writing about is the role of women in society. Photograph, Day 3. How's your doll? How's your doll's health? You speak into your doll's ears. It's a secret. Shut your mouth for life. As you pluck out your doll's eyes, you liked it too, didn't you? That's it, isn't it? As you cut off your doll's hair, die, you filthy bitch. As you set your doll on fire, you've forgotten about your past life forever, haven't you? As you look up the sense of that, Kim's poetry is difficult, it's dark, and it's poetry that almost rather than listening to it, you might like to sit down with and kind of turn the words over a bit. Kim said that, you know, she's very uh, interested in death and that for her, uh, writing poetry is almost a form of dying. She describes herself as a tomb robber who is robbing my own tomb when she writes poetry. Appropriately, her new anthology, which came out last year, is called Autobiography of Death. In Korea, there is this notion that the soul of a person who dies is in between realms for 49 days. And in this book, Kim, who likes to describe herself as a tomb robber when she writes her poems, uh, puts together 49 poems, for one for each of those 49 days before the person enters the cycle of reincarnation. One of the poems is about a fairly recent, really tragic event in South Korean history called I Want to Go to the Islands. I want to go to the island, day 20. 
You leave for the island in the middle of the night. You get on the ferry, dragging along a small bag. It's midnight, and you're bored. You can't fall asleep. You go out on the deck. The vast sky and ocean are a black mirror. It wavers. You think about the sleeping fish inside the black mirror. You think about the gluttony of the vast mirror that leaves nothing behind, not even a single shadow. You ponder, what if starting tomorrow the days without sunrise continue? Then we'll be inside this black mirror 24 hours a day, and who would dip a pen into the mirror water to write about us? Why is there so much ink for writing? You head to the cafeteria to shake off your ominous thoughts. You might have heard the ship floating on black water, sobbing sadly. You receive a phone call after midnight. The calls about the emptiness of your being gone. This is the thousandth time. This is the thousandth call. The emptiness over there is transmitted to you, in spite of the calls. You go into the hallway and pick up the receiver and sing the oldest song you know into it. You set a time for your songs to be sent. So someone feeling empty can hear the song as soon as, soon as she opens her eyes the next morning, but you doze off as if you're stepping into the mirror water as you listen to the sounds the sleeping bodies make. For the thousandth time, Kim went on to talk about the abuse of government power in South Korea, because despite that poem sounding like a very personal human tragedy, that is actually the larger perspective that she's interested in. So this incident made her reflect about all the unjust, uh, un unjust death that took place under the uh, power of the, the misuse of the power of the government in South Korea. And so she wrote as if like she set up like each candle, that she lit each candle. So each poem is like a candle. So, she, so each poem is a meditation of uh, the death, the unjust death, the death of the children, and some of the death that, she, that was near within, uh, in her own personal life as well. Now, Kim's going to go on to talk about the language that she uses and how she tries to subvert the language of masculinity and also how poetry and privilege operate in South Korea. And while we're listening to those segments, I think it's interesting to think about the uh, differences and similarities between her and Anthony and Aksaguru, because in a way, they're both kind of playing with the idea of who poetry is meant to be for. Both of them came into it feeling like outsiders to the genre to a certain extent, but also they've kind of moved in opposite directions because a lot of what Anthony was talking about is about trying to reclaim the prose poem and trying to make, you know, the idea of small publishing of poems something that's exciting to a wider group of people. So while he's trying to capture a certain formality, what Kim's trying to do is actually push back against it. Because as you'll hear, one of the things that she really objects to in uh, older, more traditional Korean poetry is the idea that it follows a very rigid form and that it's got to be written by a specific group of people. Traditionally, if you wanted to write poems in Korea, you took an exam, almost like a bureaucrat. Even though she is um, uh, using the common language, the, the language of men and power, she is attempting to erase that language and to create uh, her own language that erases that language of power. 
instead exploring the sounds of the inner organs, things that splatter out of um, her mouth and things that uh, pours out of her nose, uh, nose holes. You know, so she's sort of trying to find other uh, forms and sounds of language. I don't really know if the audiences for Kim and Anthony's poetry would ever overlap that much. There's something about Anthony's poetry that makes you want to listen to it in a group, maybe. It, wants, it makes you want to go out and take action. It makes you want to really engage. Whereas, as I was saying before, Kim's poetry is the sort of thing you want to sit down with and really, you know, turn over in your mouth. There's something perhaps less immediately accessible about it, but it's incredibly rewarding. Either way, if there's one thing that I've learned by hosting this podcast over the last year, it's that there's no point in being limited by genre or by what you think you might like before you give it a go. I have found myself being interested in things like experimental classical music. I will own up and say that before last week's Stockhausen episode, I thought the whole podcast was going to be about Stockholm Syndrome. I found myself interested in artificial intelligence and even jazz. So, let's broaden our horizons. I challenge you to go back through your feed and find the episode of Think Aloud that you thought was least relevant to you and give it a listen. Because I can promise you, it will be as worth it for you as it was for me. For more podcasts like this, look out for Southbank Centre on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more poetry events this summer, you can check out our website. And you can follow me on Twitter at HarrietFL. <laughs>